Welcome back to the Hemingway List. Book 7, Chapter 7 of War and Peace. Natasha wonders if Nicholas thinks Andre would disapprove of how good a time she is having at Uncle's house. Though, she personally thinks Andre would understand. How do you think Andre would feel about her country dancing and gaiety? Do you think he would be okay with her joining the hunt in the first place? What do you think Tolstoy... Sorry, why do you think Tolstoy chose to include this long hunting party scene? What does it contribute to the overall narrative? Are you enjoying this section? I am enjoying it. Um, Oh, excuse me. I remember the first time I read it, thinking that this bit was... I don't know, like a little vacation in the book. And I didn't like it the first time I read this book. Oops. It's my phone. Um, I didn't like it the first time I read it. But this time I was actually found myself looking forward to it. Um, hang on, I'm just going to respond to that phone call. Yep, it's my partner trying to call me. I just sent her back one word, podcast. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, I was looking forward to the hunting chapters this time around. And um, I think when they took me by surprise the first time I read the book, they just seemed so out of place and like almost like tedious to get through because I wanted to get back to the story. But this time around, it almost it felt more like part of the story, and a good part of the story. Um, Big Blue Banana says, "I'm reading Briggs, and I'll be quite happy if I never have to read Fair for the Chase again." Uh, in Dunnigan, it's Fair Field, Clear Course, uh, and I think, um, what is it in the one we're reading in? Um, on uh, the Maud translation, it's that thing that, that Uncle says always, that's it. What does he say? That's it? Something like that. That's it, come on, is what he says. That's it, come on. I think. Where is it? Um, no, now I can't find. Basically, any example of Uncle talking. Yeah, he says, there it is. That's it, come on. That's it, come on. Always saying, that's it, come on. I guess in every different translation, it's a different thing. In Edmund, it's, that's the mark. Um, in P and V, it's, right you are. There you go. Um, they're all pretty different, really, aren't they? You'd think there'd be a really literal translation that they would pretty much stick to, but they're all just kind of generic, uh, sort of enthusiastic phrases. I don't know. Um, no pants time says, I think past Andre would disapprove of the carousing at uncle's, but current Andre would probably start as a begrudging and cautious participant and then really have fun too. I get the feeling so far that he's so into Natasha that he'd probably be cool with most of the stuff she wanted to do. I think that's part of the charm of her for him is that she does things like this. You know, she's quite free-spirited. Um, but I think... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. How would Andre be 
during these chapters. He'd probably just get really into the hunt more than anything. I can imagine him being quite the sportsman in that regard. Um, anyway, I think we've hung out with Uncle for long enough. I'm ready to keep reading. Read chapter 8. Um, and I've got to go and teach about 80-something kids tomorrow, so that's going to be fun. And I'll teach them all about War and Peace. You'd be surprised how often I refer or reference War and Peace during my um, teaching, when I'm teaching at schools. Almost, I think every time, every class I've ever stood in front of in the last couple of years since I read War and Peace, I reckon I've mentioned War and Peace at least once. Because there's just whatever you're teaching, whatever you know, little facet of creative writing, there's always an example of from War and Peace which matches. All right, chapter eight goes like this. Count Ilya Rostov had resigned the position of marshal of the nobility because it involved him in too much expense. But still, his affairs did not improve. Natasha and Nicholas often noticed their parents conferring together anxiously and privately and heard suggestions of selling the fine ancestral Rostov house and estate near Moscow. It was not necessary to entertain so freely as when the Count had been marshal and life at Otradoi was quieter now than in former years, but still, the enormous house and its lodges were full of people and more than twenty sat down at the table every day. These were all their own people who had settled down in the house almost as members of the family, or persons who were, it seemed, obliged to live in the Count's house. Such were Dimla, the musician, and his wife, Vogel, the dancing master, and his family, Belova, an old maiden lady, an intimate of the house, and many others, such as Petya's tutors, the girl's former governesses, and other people who simply found it preferable and more advantageous to live in the Count's house than at home. They had not as many visitors as before, but the old habits of life, without which the Count and Countess could not conceive of existence, remained unchanged. There was still the hunting establishment, which Nicholas had even enlarged, the same fifty horses and fifteen grooms in the stables, the same expensive presents and dinner parties to who to the whole district on the name days. There were still the Count's games of whist and Boston, at which, spreading out his cards so that everybody could see them, he let himself be plundered of hundreds of roubles every day by his neighbours, who looked upon an opportunity to play a rubber with Count Rostov as a most profitable source of income. The Count moved in his affairs as in a huge net, trying not to believe that he was entangled, but becoming more and more so at every step, and feeling too feeble to break the meshes or to set to work carefully and patiently to disentangle them, the Countess, with her loving heart, felt that her children were being ruined, that it was not the Count's fault, for he could not help being what he was, that, though he tried to hide it, he himself suffered from the consciousness of his own and his children's ruin. And she tried to find means of remedying the position. From her feminine point of view, she could see only one solution, namely, for Nicholas to marry a rich heiress. She felt this to be their last hope, and that, if Nicholas refused the match she had found for him, she would have to abandon the hope of ever getting matters right. This match was with Julie Karagina, the daughter of excellent and virtuous parents, a girl the Rostovs had known from childhood, and who had now become a wealthy heiress through the death of the last of her brothers. The Countess had written direct 
to Julie's mother in Moscow suggesting a marriage between their children and had received a favourable answer from her. Karagina had replied that her, for her part she was agreeable and everything depended on her daughter's inclination. She invited Nicholas to come to Moscow. Several times the Countess, with tears in her eyes, told her son that now both her daughters were settled, her only wish was to see him married. She said she could lie down in her grave peacefully if that were accomplished. Then she told him that she knew of a splendid girl and tried to discover what he thought about marriage. At other times she praised Julie to him and advised him to go to Moscow during the holidays to amuse himself. Nicholas guessed what his mother's remarks were leading to and during one of these conversations induced her to speak quite frankly. She told him that her only hope of getting their affairs disentangled now lay in his marrying, his marrying Julie Karagina. But, Mama, suppose I loved a girl who has no fortune. Would you expect me to sacrifice my feelings and my honour for the sake of money? He asked his mother, not realising the cruelty of this question and only wishing to show his noble-mindedness. No, you have not understood me, said his mother, not knowing how to justify herself. You have not understood me, Nikolenka. It is your happiness I wish for, she added, feeling that she was telling an untruth and was becoming entangled. She began to cry. Mama, don't cry. Only tell me that you wish it, and you know I will give my life anything to put you at ease, said Nicholas. I would sacrifice anything for you, even my feelings. But the Countess did not want the question put like that. She did not want a sacrifice from her son. She herself wished to make a sacrifice for him. No, you have not understood me. Don't let us talk about it, she replied, wiping away her tears. Maybe I do love a poor girl, said Nicholas to himself. Am I to sacrifice my feelings and my honour for money? I wonder how Mama could speak so to me. Because Sonia is poor, I must not love her, he thought. Must not respond to her faithful, devoted love. Yet I should certainly be happier with her than with some doll like Julie. I can always sacrifice my feelings for my family's welfare, he said to himself. But I can't coerce my feelings. If I love Sonia, that feeling is for me stronger and higher than all else. Nicholas did not go to Moscow, and the Countess did not renew the conversation with him about marriage. She saw with sorrow, and sometimes with exasperation, symptoms of a growing attachment between her son and the pointless sorry, and the portionless Sonia. Though she blamed him though she blamed herself for it, she could not refrain from grumbling at and worrying Sonia, often pulling her up without reason addressing her stiffly as my dear and using the formal you instead of the intimate thou in speaking to her. The kind-hearted countess was the more vexed with Sonia because that poor dark-eyed niece of hers was so meek, so kind, so devotedly grateful to her benefactors and so faithfully, unchangingly, un unselfishly in love with Nicholas that there were no grounds for finding fault with her. Nicholas was spending the last of his leave at home. A fourth letter had come from Prince Andrei from Rome, in which he wrote that he would have been on his way back to Russia long ago, had not his wound unexpectedly reopened in the warm climate which obliged him to defer his return till the beginning of the new year. Natasha was still as much in love with her betrothed, found the same comfort in that love, and was still as ready to throw herself into all the pleasures of life as before. But, at the end of the fourth month of their separation, she began to have fits of depression which she could not master. She felt sorry for herself, sorry that she was being wasted all this time and of no use 
to anyone while she felt herself so capable of loving and being loved. Things were not cheerful in the Rostov's home. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for you. Things were not cheerful in the Rostov's home. It's really a very, um, very upfront statement. Hell of a way to end a chapter. Have your say about the chapter over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.